0: Good morning everyone, Uh, whether you're here or joining us via live stream, I know a number of our folks, our families are traveling as it is summer, um, including our very own Pastor Mark and Julie and so even though they're not present with us, um, let's continue to remember them and uh, keep them in our prayers even as they are away and uh, hopefully will be joining us in the coming week or so. As Kevin mentioned, it is also Father's Day, so a happy Father's Day to many of you. And um, for our family, we celebrated that yesterday with our boys. And um, yeah, just reminded, you know, uh, know, even telling the boys, if there is any good that I can produce um, as a father, and any example I can leave to them, it is only because of God's work in my life. Um, It is apart from any goodness or righteousness of my own. And so I'm constantly reminded of that, especially um, this day. And um, praise God that we can know our Heavenly Father who has promised to do His work and complete that good work in us. Um, before I start, I want to let you guys know that next Sunday we will be st- uh, resuming our, or I should say, relaunching our children's ministry. Uh, it's been a long time since. Uh, We were able to have that on our Sundays, and so for the nursery kids and for our preschool and elementary kids, uh, we're thankful that you guys have been with us during this prolonged period, uh, joining us in our corporate gathering, but we're excited to announce next Sunday we'll be starting once a month, uh, having a children's class, uh, and then hopefully We'll move uh, past that to having things on a more regular basis. And so if you're a parent, just expect an email from somebody on our um, Cornerstone Servant Team. And we'll be taking sign-ups and letting you know more information about that. Well, this morning we are going to return to the book of Leviticus. And if you were here with us last Sunday, we did sort of a general overview of the book. And what we saw was that the major theme of this book is the theme of the holiness of God the holiness of God. And if I can have my first slide, what Leviticus teaches us through the various laws and statutes, the ordinances and rituals that comprise this ancient book, are three things. God's desire for fellowship with his people. It's also his requirement of holiness for his people and God's provision of grace for his people. In all three of these points, flow out of God's holy character, that he is set apart, separate, and distinct as the Holy One of Israel. He's the one that had delivered his chosen people out of slavery in Egypt so that they might be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. He promises to dwell among them in the tabernacle, but requires that they be holy, for He is holy. They were to be consecrated to the Lord, their God, totally committed to Him in every aspect of their lives, from their corporate worship, to their relationship, to their business transactions. No significant area of life escaped God's calling to be wholly devoted to Him. Without compromising His absolute standard of holiness, God graciously provides a means by which His people can approach His holy presence through the sacrificial system and the ordained priesthood. It is in this context that we learned about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, which serves as the theological epicenter of not only the book of Leviticus, but of the entire Pentateuch. On this special day, the high priest would enter the most holy place behind the veil of the tabernacle and offer atonement through blood for all the sins of Israel. We saw that this ceremony ultimately points us to Christ. He is our great high priest and the sacrificial lamb of God whose substitutionary atonement on the cross removes our sin Once and for all, and grants us access to the holy presence and throne of God. Now, when we consider the application of Leviticus to our present lives, it starts not with us, but with God. Right? And what we see is that God has revealed himself through these old covenant laws, statutes, and regulations. While the Levitical laws about sacrifices, priesthood, and purification were meant for Israel back then, and ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who is the end of the law, they communicate timeless truths about who God is and what His will is for those whom He has claimed for Himself. Remember, our eternal God is unchanging in His nature, in His purposes, and in his promises. He is the same God in Genesis, as he is in Leviticus, as he is in Malachi, as he is in Matthew, as he is in Colossians, as he is in Revelation, and as he is today. And we are called to behold him as he is, and as he always will be. This knowledge and revelation of God ultimately leads the fundamental question of our worship. Does our worship of God conform to whom he has revealed himself to be, who he truly is, according to the book of Leviticus? Does the way we conduct our daily lives, how we pray, how we approach his word, how we serve in ministry and in our respective places of work how we discipline our children, how we resolve conflicts in relationships, how we handle trials and temptations. Do they befit the holy God of Leviticus, who desires fellowship, demands holiness, and invites us to draw near through His grace today? I'll be the first to admit that in the past, I've been guilty of finding Leviticus to be boring and irrelevant. Doing my quiet time in the book of Leviticus felt like a chore. But if our reading of the collection of laws, rituals, and statutes recorded in this God-breathed book does not elevate our worship of Him, and if it does not grow our appreciation for Christ, then we have completely missed the purpose of Leviticus. At the end of the day, the holiness of God is meant to draw us to worship Him in fear and reverence. In light of this understanding, this morning we will continue to focus on God's holiness in Leviticus, but from a slightly different angle. Within this book of ancient laws and regulations, we find a particular narrative that illustrates the danger of approaching God's holy presence. Through the negative example of Nadab Abihu, found in Leviticus chapter 10, we will learn how the Lord is to be treated as holy, especially by those who are called to represent his holiness to others. We will also learn how God's judgment is to be expected when his commands are ignored, abused, or taken lightly. So go ahead and turn to Leviticus. Chapter 10, but before we read our passage, let me quickly set the scene if I can have my next slide. If we consider the overall structure of Leviticus, our passage is found in the second section of Leviticus in chapters eight through 10. In chapters one through seven, we find details regarding the sacrificial system, how the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the guilt offering, and the sin offering were to be presented before God in the manner He prescribed. Chapters 8 through 10 concern the priesthood, in particular, how Aaron and his sons were to mediate these sacrifices on behalf of the people. Extending outward from Israel's central worship, when we get to chapters 11 through 15, God prescribes specific laws regarding purification among the community of His people. And they lead to chapter 16, where instructions are given regarding the Day of Atonement. And finally, in chapters 17 through 27, various regulations regarding holy living are stipulated, ranging from vows and feasts to sexual relations. Our passage in Leviticus chapter 10 is a narrative sandwiched in between divine instructions pertaining to the priesthood and the laws of purification. Within the large collection of laws and regulations that serve to communicate his holiness to his people, God interjects with a historical account involving two of Aaron's sons. And whenever there is a break or a change in the flow and pattern of the biblical text, it is not Mere coincidence. We ought to pay attention, for God is deliberately making a point. And I would argue from the context that what God has prescribed in His laws before in Leviticus 1 through 9 and after in Leviticus 11 through 27, He describes or demonstrates through this short narrative found in Leviticus 10 1 through 7. So what is he trying to teach the Israelites, and by extension, us? Well, to see this, let's turn to our passage for this morning. And I'm going to actually start reading one chapter ahead from Leviticus chapter 9 all the way through Leviticus 10, verse 7. Leviticus 9, starting at verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons And the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, "'Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering "'and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, "'and offer them before the Lord. "'And say to the people of Israel, "'Take a male goat for a sin offering, "'and a calf and a lamb, both a year old, "'without blemish, for a burnt offering, "'and an ox and a ram for peace offerings "'to sacrifice before the Lord.' And a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar, and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself, and for the people, and bring the offering of the people, and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf with the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood, put it on the horns of the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat, and the kidneys, and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece, and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs, and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering, and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people, and killed it, and offered it. As a sin offering, like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the oxen of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidney and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts, and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Chapter 10 Now Adab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized an fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Then Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. Do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. It's the word of the Lord. If I could have my next slide. From Leviticus uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. We are given four demands that the holiness of God places upon our lives. Four demands that the holiness of God places upon our lives. First, God's holiness demands that we act according to His word. Second, God's holiness demands that those who approach Him rightly regard and represent His holiness before others. God's holiness, thirdly, demands separation from all that is unclean and defiled. And fourthly, God's holiness demands that we affirm His righteous judgment. I'll go over each of those in a few moments. But as we just read, Leviticus chapter 9 closes with Israel witnessing a lofty vision of God's glory as he sends fire to consume the sacrifice offered by Aaron and his sons. Leviticus chapter 10 opens with two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, being struck down by the very same fire from the Lord. Juxtaposed and contrasted, Leviticus 9 and 10 together highlight the blessing in the danger of God's holy presence. As we move from chapter 9 to chapter 10, we go from a spiritual high to a low point in the history of Israel. It follows a recurrent pattern we see throughout Scripture starting back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve's rebellion and expulsion from paradise. Now, who exactly are Nadab and Abihu? Can I get my next slide? Well, according to Leviticus 10 verse 1, they are two of Aaron's sons meaning they were nephews of Moses, who was Israel's leader at that time. Aaron had two other sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, according to Leviticus 10, verse 6. This is affirmed when we go back to Exodus six, twenty-three, and trace the genealogy of Aaron's family. There we read, Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. When we get to Exodus 24, we learn how Nadab and Abihu encountered the holy presence of God on Mount Sinai. Then God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. In case you didn't catch that, Nadab and Abihu were amongst the privileged few to have had a divine encounter and live to tell about it. Four chapters later in Exodus 28 verse 1 we read, Then bring to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him, from among the people of Israel to serve as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. They received a divine calling and were set apart from among the tribe of Levi and from all of Israel to serve within the tabernacle where God promised to dwell with His covenant people. Skipping ahead to Leviticus chapter 8, We read about the ordination of Aaron and his sons. This was a special dedication ceremony to consecrate and set apart Aaron and his sons as God's chosen priests, according to Exodus 29. As part of the ordination, Moses presents, on behalf of Aaron and his sons, a sin offering, a burnt offering, and a wave offering. After making sacrifices, he commissions them to service in verses 34 through 36, saying, As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. And in Leviticus Leviticus 9, which we just read about, following their seven days of ordination, Aaron and his sons begin their ministry by presenting offering for themselves and for the people of Israel. As we come to Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 7, our passage for this morning, we learn that Nadab and Abihu had the privilege of belonging to the priestly line of Aaron. Not only had they witnessed firsthand God's mighty deliverance from Egypt, but along with the 70 elders, they encountered his divine presence on Mount Sinai and got closer to God than any Israelite apart from Moses and Aaron. They were called and ordained to serve in the tabernacle and were in line to replace Aaron as the high priest one day. Yet none of these privileges and opportunities would spare their life from God's holy wrath. This is the grave consequence of those who fail to regard the danger and demands that God's holiness places upon our lives. And it leads to our first point for this morning. The holiness of God demands that we act according to His word. The holiness of God demands that we act according to His word. Let's read verses 1 through 2 again. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. It put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. We see that Nadab and Abihu took the liberty to offer incense in a manner that was not authorized by the Lord. The Hebrew word for unauthorized is czar, translated strange in the NASB and unholy in the RSV. It could also mean alien or illicit. And the reason that it was not authorized is given in the following phrase, which the Lord had not commanded them. In other words, Nadab and Abihu had done what was contrary to God's instruction. He had not given them the right to go above and beyond what he had prescribed. In contrast, five times in the preceding chapter, in Leviticus chapter 9, Moses mentions that Aaron and his sons did exactly what the Lord had commanded them. Ultimately, It was Nadab and Abihu's disobedience to the word of the Lord that led to their demise. Now over the centuries, scholars and commentators have speculated on what their actual uh, offense committed was that warranted such a severe judgment. Perhaps Nadab and Abihu had entered into the most holy place, a privilege reserved only for the high priest and only once a year on the Day of Atonement as we learned last week. Or perhaps they took coals that were not from the altar, but from another source. Or perhaps they had uh, offered improper incense. Or perhaps they were drunk when they were offering incense. And that was the reason why in verse 9, Moses tells Aaron, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. Certainly a valid argument can be made for each possibility based on the context of our passage. But the text does not state conclusively or give details about the precise form of their sin. What is explicit from the end of verse 1 and the point that Moses is making here is that they did what God had not commanded or allowed for. This is supported by references to Nadab and Abihu post-mortem, particularly in the book of Numbers, where over and over again it is stated that Nadab and Abihu died as a result of offering, that was not, offering fire that was not authorized or commanded by the Lord. Notice as well that there is no mention of Nadab and Abihu's motivation for offering unauthorized fire. Was it deliberate or malicious? Perhaps that may have been the case, but it is also possible that under the circumstances, they had a good rationale for doing what they did, just as Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6 had a good reason to grasp the Ark of the Covenant in order to steady it when its cart jolted. From the biblical text, We are not privy to their reason. We simply do not know. But like many of you, I'm tempted to assume a sinful motivation on the part of Nadab and Abihu. To read it into the passage, for it makes God seem less capricious, unreasonable, or vengeful. It makes His holiness more tolerable and palatable. But God does not need us to justify His holy wrath or jealousy. We are not to apologize or make excuses for His righteous anger as if it were some deficiency in His character. Rather, we are simply called to affirm His holiness in our lives. The bottom line based on God's explanation of the event given in the very next verse, is that Nadab and Abihu did not treat him as holy, sanctified, set apart, and separate. They presumed upon his holiness. And in the end, regardless of the reason that they had, they had no excuse to go beyond what he had authorized. God's holiness demands strict obedience to His revealed Word. No matter what may seem right in our eyes in the moment, we are not at liberty to embellish, to manipulate, to add, or to take away from what He has clearly commanded in His Word. One other point I want to make from these verses before we move on. The phrase, before the Lord, is repeated three times in these two verses. That record this tragic event. We mentioned last week that the presence of the Lord is a major theme in this book of Leviticus. This is highlighted by the fact that the tabernacle is referred to as the tent of meeting where God dwells and communes with the Israelites. As much as his presence among his people is a blessing and benefit beyond comparison, at the same time, it is a double edged sword. To enter into his holy presence without proper fear and reverence is to do so at one's peril. As the author of Hebrew reminds us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so his holiness demands that we live every moment of every day in the conscious presence of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, Even when no one else is there, he is ever present and watching. Nadab and Abihu learned this lesson the hard way as fire consumed them from before the Lord and they were literally stopped dead in their tracks. Well, let's move on to our second point for this morning. If I can have my next slide. The holiness of God demands that those who approach him rightly regard and represent His holiness before others. The holiness of God demands that those who approach Him rightly regard and represent His holiness before others. Verse 3, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Here we are given God's interpretation of what had just happened. God insists that those who approach and come near Him must sanctify Him in their hearts. That is, they must set Him apart and treat Him as holy. He's also to be glorified before all the people. The word therefore glorified in the Hebrew is kabbad. K- it literally means to weigh heavily upon, or to be honored. God cares deeply about how he is received and represented by his people. God cares deeply about how he is received and represented by his people. The presentation of his holiness is a matter of utmost concern. His holiness is not to be a light or trivial matter, for His glory is at stake. It is to weigh heavily upon our lives. It demands those who approach Him to rightly regard and represent His holiness before others. Anything less will incur His judgment. Back in Exodus 19, verse 21 through 22, the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord. To look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Nadab and Abihu failed to heed this warning. Through their actions, they showed an utter disregard for the holiness of God. As priests, They also failed to guard the people's perception of His holiness when it was clearly their duty to do so. And as a result, they placed themselves under divine judgment for He promises to be glorified at all cost, even if it means striking down those who make light of His holiness. God expects those who are in a privileged position to lead people into his worship and presence to take their role seriously. Back then, for the nation of Israel, this pertains specifically to the priests who were not only to facilitate atonement, but also to demonstrate God's holiness to all the people. While the Levitical priesthood has been replaced and surpassed by Jesus Christ, our great high priest, God's expectations are still the same for those who represent his holiness before others. The same principle is found and applied in the New Testament when it comes to leadership in the church and in the home. As we studied in Titus and 1 Timothy, the holiness of God must be upheld and displayed in the lives of those who serve as pastors, elders, and deacons. By extension, the same should be true. Of discipleship group leaders, ministry leaders, and those who teach in our children's ministry. In the home, husbands and fathers are to reflect the holy love of God to their wives and to their children. Ephesians 5. God's standard of holiness is singular and absolute. There is not one for the priests and another for the common people, one for the pastor and another for the congregation yet there is greater accountability for those who are called to serve in positions of authority, privilege, and leadership. Hence, James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Brothers and sisters, do we rightly regard the holiness of God in our lives? Do we set Him apart as holy At home, at work, at school, at church, in private, and in public? Or do we simply pay lip service to His holiness? For those of us who are called to spiritual leadership in the home and in the church, do we take seriously our responsibility to guard the perception of God's holiness before others? We see Aaron's response to God's holiness at the end of verse 3. Having witnessed his two eldest sons consumed by the wrath of God, Aaron held his peace. He was left speechless. He had nothing to say. He offered no rebuttal. For he understood that God's holiness demands those who approach him to rightly regard and represent His holiness before others. And to presume upon his holiness is to expose oneself to possible danger. Moving on to verse 4, we come to our third point for this morning. The holiness of God demands separation from all that is unclean and defiled. The holiness of God demands separation from all that is unclean and defiled. Verse 4 And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near. Carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. We won't spend as much time on our final two points, but here is a critical implication that should not be overlooked God's holiness cannot tolerate anything that is defiled or unclean. And that includes human corpses. Anything profane or unholy was not fit to be in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. It needed to be removed and excluded from His holy sanctuary. Aaron and his sons, his other sons, being priests and set apart for God's holy service, were forbidden from coming close to the incinerated bodies, lest they become defiled themselves. For that reason, Moses calls upon Mishael and Elzaphan to carry the corpses of Nadab and Abihu out of the camp. The call to separate from all that is unclean and defiled is highlighted in the very next section of Leviticus, chapters 11 through 15, where the laws of purification are laid out. Leprosy, childbirth, bodily discharge, and consuming unclean foods all render one unclean. And he or she must be cleansed and purified in the manner prescribed before entering into God's presence. As stated earlier, these old covenant laws no longer apply to us as New Testament believers. However, the principle of separation that God's holiness calls for still stands today. When reflecting on this idea that God's holiness calls us to separate from all that is unclean and defiled, I cannot help but think of the world that we live in. Our calling as a church is to be a light for the gospel in our homes, in our schools, in our places of work. And yet one of the greatest, if not the greatest danger and temptation we face as a church is worldliness. It's the influence of the world upon our lives, especially as we live and work in an area of much prosperity and wealth. And if we are to be honest with ourselves, oftentimes our appetite and attraction for the things of this world are greater than our desire for the holiness of God. But in his high priestly prayer recorded in John 17, Jesus prayed specifically for his disciples. Not that we would be taken out of the world, but that we would be sanctified In the truth, as he sends us out into the world, we are to be set apart and devoted entirely and exclusively to him. And we are to keep ourselves unstained from the world, having been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Of course, this doesn't mean that we completely cut ourselves off from society and live in a bubble, as many religious cults and even some in the Christian homeschooling movement would advocate. For Jesus made clear that what defiles a man or person is not what goes into our mouths, but what proceeds from our heart. What it does mean is that we are to guard our affections and appetites, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and to separate, reject, and disassociate from anything and everything that defiles the holiness of God. The call to holiness is a call to be separate unto the Lord. We are not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the power of the gospel, Romans 12.2. We are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but separate from them, says the Lord, 2 Corinthians 6, 14-17. We are not to love the world or the things in the world, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. 1 John two fifteen through sixteen. Our lives are to be wholly devoted to Him. How often do you and I think about the holiness of God in our day-to-day decisions? How we spend our time, where we invest our money what shows we watch, what activities we participate in, what relationships we pursue. Others may accuse us of being hard-lined or legalistic, even by those inside the church. But if our genuine desire is to be pleasing to Him in every way, then according to Hebrews 12, through 12 14, we ought to strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. This leads to our fourth and final point for this morning. The holiness of God demands that we affirm His righteous judgment. The holiness of God demands that we affirm His righteous judgment. Verse 6 and 7. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation, but let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Whether you are a parent today or not, let us for a moment put ourselves in Aaron's shoes. You've just witnessed your children disciplined by the Lord. How easy would it be for you to hear those words, let alone obey them? How many of us in that situation would question God's goodness rather than acknowledge His holiness? But there is no sympathy from the Lord for the ones who profane his holiness. And Aaron and his surviving sons were not to mourn the death of Nadab and Abihu, but to agree with God's judgment. All of Israel were to weep over God's righteous anger, triggered by the violation of his holiness. Like Aaron, Becky and I have four sons, and if I had to be frank, if God were to strike down two of my boys for profaning his holiness, it wouldn't be so easy for me to accept. When I asked myself why, my first thought was, well, because I love my boys. Would you, any of you as a parent want to see your children die at the hand of the Lord? But the more I reflected on this passage, the more I realized that the heart of the issue is not that I love my boys too much, but that I don't value, that I don't esteem God's holiness enough. I'm convinced that what's missing in many of our lives in our church, and I count myself among you, is an adequate view and regard for the holiness of God. We do not fear the Lord as we should, and it's revealed in our struggle with worldliness, in our discontentment and anxiety, in our lack of repentance, and in our tolerance of sin. We might acknowledge His holiness, even sing about it as we did this morning, but do we truly live in light of it? recognizing that his holy wrath is as much a divine perfection as his love, his mercy, and his grace. In verses 6 through 7, we see that the holiness of God demands that we grieve over the violation of his holiness. It's not enough for Aaron to remain silent. It's not enough for Aaron and his surviving sons to refrain from mourning over the consequences of Nadab and Abihu's sin. A true understanding of His holiness means that we are to be grieved when His righteous anger is provoked due to the profaning of His holiness. And it wasn't just for Aaron and his family. It says, the whole house of Israel was to bewail the burning that the Lord had kindled. Every man, every woman, and every child. Church, is that our collective response to sin and to the righteous judgment of the Lord, both in our own lives and in the lives of those around us? Is there a brokenness over God's holiness being violated, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance? Whenever discipline is carried out in the church is our greatest burden and desire that God's holiness be upheld as much as we are to seek the restoration of a brother to fellowship. Now we know that the two are not mutually exclusive but God's holiness must be the basis for the restoration of the repentant sinner. And we are reminded from 1 Peter chapter 4 that judgment begins at the household of God. It begins with us, not with them, outside the church. As a loving father does not discipline the kids down the street, but his own, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. Listen to what J.C. Ryle writes in his book on holiness. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing with God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. He who most entirely agrees with God, he is the most holy man. End quote. So let me ask, are you such a man or woman? Do you confess and agree with God's judgment? Do you hate what he hates, love what he loves, and grieve over what grieves him? Do you measure everything in your life by the standard of his word. The holiness of God demands that we affirm his righteous judgment. If I can have the next slide. This morning from Leviticus ten one through 7, we were given a clear and lofty vision of God's holiness. On the one hand, His presence in our lives is our greatest joy and blessing. At the same time, there is an associated risk of danger for those who make light of His holiness. And the story of Nadab and Abihu serves as a cautionary tale for anyone who dares approach the Lord casually. But it is not just a cautionary tale. In order to properly apply this passage to our present lives, we must identify ourselves with Nadab and Abihu. While we are not priests and while the church is not the nation of Israel, God's holiness places the same four demands upon your life and mine. None of us can escape these requirements. And like Nadab and Abihu, we have failed To rightly regard His holiness and have pursued oftentimes what is right in our own eyes. Rather than acting according to His holy word. As sinners, our first response ought to be one of repentance. For the ways that we have not treated Him as holy. And have failed to live up to these demands. It is to confess to the Lord our unholiness and our utter wretchedness as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6 upon seeing a vision of God's holiness. It is to acknowledge, as David did in Psalm 51, God's righteous judgment over our sin. But it is also to appeal to the Lord for His mercy and to ask Him to give us a renewed desire for his holiness in our lives. Can I get my last slide? It begins with us beholding the holy one of Israel who gave his holy son for those who are unholy. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was the only one to ever fulfill the demands of God's holiness. He lived and acted according to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As the sinless Son of Man, he kept himself pure and undefiled from the contamination of this world. And having affirmed God's righteous judgment, he embodied and represented His holiness to us. But he would go one step further. Jesus Christ would go to the cross for the sins of those who would repent and believe in Him. In exchange for our unholiness, He would give us His holiness and with it a desire and an ability through the power of His Word and His Spirit to live each day for His honor and His glory such that these four demands not only become our duty, but they become our delight. Brothers and sisters, is that the testimony of our lives? If you are not a Christian today, the Word of God makes clear that as sinners we all stand condemned before His holiness. There is none among us who is righteous, not even one. While we all deserve to perish and suffer forever in hell, for His holiness demands a righteous judgment for our sin. God sent Jesus Christ into this world so that if you would humble yourself, turn from your sin, believing that on that cross He took upon Himself the punishment that should have been yours, you will be forgiven, set apart for Him, and restored to a right relationship with God. That is the amazing promise and the sure hope of the gospel. So will you repent? leave your sin, and run to Christ today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for showing us yourself through the narrative of Nadab and Abihu, how holy you are. Forgive us, each of us sitting in this room, for falling short of your glory, for not regarding your holiness as we should, for failing to represent your holiness before others. Lord, forgive us. Thank you for sending Christ, who is our righteousness, for he covers our unholiness and promises through the power of the gospel to make us holy and pleasing in your sight. Would you help us in the days, months, years ahead as a church that we would grow in holiness, that we would reflect your holiness amongst ourselves, but to a world out there that so desperately needs to behold you as their holy God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.